And good afternoon. This is Teokazen Ghost Horse. This is First Voices Radio. Just want to thank you for joining us all those years, all those times. What I'd like to say, being here in these mountains for Native Radio at its finest, I would say, and at its worst. Community radio is all about that, that understanding that hum- humanity comes has come a long way, actually. And when I'm finding the realities of what it means for a Native person to live within this other reality called America and its democracy, and listening to other news sources and how other countries deserve as Americans have done this to them. A lot of people don't want to bring it home. They, they would raise the flag because we've, we've left somebody else's land. I would say America has left somebody else's land. But as a Native person, as an Indigenous person, it's still here. America has not left our land. I would understand if it was the humanity of people who have not been able to understand our thought processes as Native people and understanding our thought process is the first way to understand what happens to the land, what happens to the people who are often not thought of, how do I say this in English? Our way of being is distorted a little bit because we often have a way that was here and is here and will be here since 1492 and beyond because it's the land who defines who we are and not what has come later. What has come later is still within the hidden context of hiding the tragedy. And the tragedy that I talk about in this monologue is that we forgot the earth. We forgot nature. We just forgot. And when that disconnect has come, we often step into a place of dissonance. I think I'm using that word right. And to me, that means we lack integrity with the land. We fall into the property. We fall into the history of America that America has won, rightfully taking the land from Native people. And as far as I understand, it's not that way. Again, we have to understand there is a lot of difference and how we see life. And that's my little spiel for the day. And I'm going to continue because I have figured out this computer console in front of me. That must be having to do with my computer skills, huh? Tech, no logic. Makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Get out of 
Good morning and good afternoon. This is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and I'm your host here on First Forces Radio. And um, our first guest for this day is Rosita Worrell. We had her on a few a few years ago, maybe, and she is an anthropologist and for many years served as assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Alaska Southeast. And a few weeks ago, I received an interesting press release, yes, of, from the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute up in Alaska, and they received a grant to, grant to document traditional protocols to, for removal of grief. Now think about this, folks. Institute This institute to work with traditional scholars, native scholars, clan leaders to produce a, produce a book, Dr. Worrell, and I will discuss at this time, is having to do with grief and how natives deal with grief because everybody else has the defined trauma for us native peoples that we cannot understand what has happened to us. That's a question. But here, we take it within our own hands because we understand this grief as we understand it. That doesn't apply the same way to other humanity as it does to us because this experience with the Americans, with the imposition of a colonial mentality has brought us to this point where we have to pay attention now to what we are saying for ourselves as Native people. And now, Dr. Rosita Worrell. Thank you for joining us again on First Voices. I know you were here a few months ago. This time, I think we need to talk about the traditional protocols that you have with this new grant and removal of that grief. And I think that's part of, at the same time, Rosita, losing that as Native people, as you say, how do, do we keep these mourning practices around? Because the ceremony of, of grief, uh, the removal of grief is actually telling maybe it's the root root problem of a lot of places around the world, but namely North America and even Native people as our own to move forward with all our grief. And to do that, we need to actually practice those ceremonies that you talk about. And welcome to First Voices, Rosita World. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Can you address that idea of the removal of grief? And I think that's what we have have to address here, because I know another educator, you might know, Martin Prachtel, talks about the grief and the praise in a proper way that our ceremonies hold. And the way we express is much different than a Western concept, I would say. Rosita. Well, um, I'm going to start talking and it'll seem like a lecture, but in order to understand our, our, our process and our grief, you have to understand a little bit about our culture. And uh, first of all, you know, ours is an ancient culture. We've lived here in our homeland for 10,000 years. We just know that, you know, scientifically, and we know it from our oral traditions. So um, we've developed, you know, our culture is very complex. It's ancient. And we have very defined rules about uh, about our ceremonies. And actually, this one uh, arose, you know, during this year of pandemic, when we weren't able to uh, hold our ceremonies. And um, and so we had, you know, of course, you know, during this horrible year, we did lose a number of our people. Uh, we weren't able to hold our ceremonies, and then we decided that we would take our 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 ceremonies virtual. And so we, we actually had a planning session and this was uh, unfortunately um, my clan leader's uh, departure. Uh, as we say in our country, he walked into the spirit. 
And he was a great man known throughout our region, uh, not only a, a clan leader, but a cultural leader uh, and the first president of the Sea Alaska Heritage um, Institute. So we had a meeting uh, to plan out the, the virtual um, ceremony. And during the course of the planning, it, be very, it became apparent to some of the elders, the elderly clan leaders, that not that some of our younger clan spokespersons had learned all of the basic rules uh, that are that govern our traditional ceremonies. So um, we said, well, we really we really need to start documenting and writing it down so that it, that the process is available to our younger spoke clan spokesperson. Um, I have to say that we do have variations, you know, uh, uh, among our clan, our clans and our communities. But I always say that the basic components of our ceremonies are the same. So to begin with, in our, uh, in our society, we're uh, we, we are clan-based society, we have clans, but our clans are divided between eagles and ravens. So we have uh, uh, a moiety systems, and we consider the, the other side the opposite side. So in um, and uh, in our world, in order to maintain social and spiritual balance, uh, when an eagle says something, there has to be a raven response, and so that's that's the social balance. If an eagle sings a song. A raven must respond by singing a song. If an, an eagle uh, brings out his ceremonial regalia, then the uh, other side, the ravens have to bring out their ceremonial regalia. So that's the social balance between the eagle and the raven. But all of this, uh, our, our ceremonial regalia, our songs, our names also have spiritual dimensions. Uh, our clan crests have spiritual dimensions. So if an eagle brings out their, let's say, crest with the, its spirits, then the raven also must respond. If we don't do this, then the scene is that the spirits can go wandering and cause ill will the spirits can go wandering and cause harm. So to maintain social, spiritual balance and harmony, we have to maintain this, this social and spiritual balance for the general welfare of, of our people and of our clan. And this, this concept is called uh, social and spiritual balance. It's one of our core cultural values that we have. The other part of it is that we also have another core cultural value called Hashuka. And Hashuka ties us, this, our current generations, to our ancestors. So, and then we also have this responsibilities and ties to the future generations. So what we do today, you know, will affect the future generations. So it's this tie between the generations you know, that we have. So that's kind of like the basic, you know, the basic context of our ceremonies, our grieving ceremonies. So we have, we have um, these grieving ceremonies are practiced in three different types of ceremony. Uh, the first one uh, occurs right when uh, 
a person, you know, has walked into the forest. So we call it, you know, we have we have to offer these words of comfort, you know, to to the grieving ceremony, to the grieving clan. So that's that's the first one is the funeral uh, or the you know the the passing of of a clan member. The second one is what we call the forty day party, and this is when the the spirit of the deceased leaves the immediate area doesn't disappear forever because you know we believe that our spirits that our homeland you know is occupied by our ancestral spirits as well that's why our homeland is so sacred to us and then um the the third one is what we call the kuih and i think this is where uh, more uh, a lot of people call it the um a potlatch but uh, because there's so many misunderstandings about the potlatch, uh, our, our, we have a council of traditional scholars. And uh, these, uh, the council is comprised of clan leaders, clan mothers, and people who have deep knowledge about our, our culture. And we see, here at Sea Alaska Heritage Institute, we use them uh, uh, to give us advice, you know, like, we're developing new programs and we want to make sure, you know, that uh, we're doing it properly. We're meeting, we're, we're uh, not viola violating any of our cultural protocols. So our council will give us advice as how, how do we implement these new kind of programs that we have? Because it was actually our elders who said, uh, they went to, uh, you know, here in Alaska, we have corporations. Uh, when we did our land claims, we uh, used corporations because we wanted to have full control of our land and ownership of our land. We didn't want to be subject to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So anyway, our elders went to uh, the Sea Alaska Board of Directors and they said, our hands are growing weary of holding on to our culture. And they said, they're, they're going to pass this responsibility on to Sea Alaska. And what they were saying is that our children are learning in new ways. And if we want our culture to survive, then we have to be teaching them in these new ways. And the new ways is schools and educational systems. So we had to figure out how do we, you know, get our cultural knowledge uh, into our schools. So that, that was what was happening. That was the process that we were using. I was trying to explain the role of the Council of Traditional Scholars. But anyway, in in the um, in the first ceremony, you know, we're we're offering words of comfort to the opposite side, the clan that had that had lost someone, and uh, our clans are interrelated. So the opposite side, you know, that that will be speaking, that will be offering the words of comfort, could be. Uh, your grandfather's plan, your father's plan, or uh, what we call, we, we have something called the outer shell. Uh, it's uh, a higher, um, it's, it's our grandparents, what we call it, Dakunuhu, the outer shell. And then, um, and then of course, our in-laws, those that we're married to. So the, those interrelated clans will offer words of comfort to the grieving clan. And what they do more often is that they will reference, they'll talk about their crests and their crests are, are sacred because their crest was, you know, came from an incident, a legendary incident that happened sometime in the past. 
and uh, and usually to acquire a crest, it means that somebody gave their life to get to have this crest. So, you know, like one of my crests is the Thunderbird. And uh, when we acquired the Thunderbird, two boys lost their life. So we we paid for that crest with uh, with the life of, of uh, our clan member. So anyway, during these grieving ceremonies, what what uh, the uh, comforty clan will do is they'll bring out their atul, their ceremonial objects. They'll bring out their crests that are on those ceremonial objects, and they'll 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 use those crests like in metaphors to uh, to comfort. Uh, like uh, one of our crests is uh, "I'm from the house lord from the sun," and so. I I will I may say something like uh, I will bring out the sun you know to warm to shine on your face to warm you to give you um, a, a, a spiritual warmth or uh, another clan that has a, a frog uh, uh, may say I'll take I'll take your sorrow the 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 grieving clan sorrow I'll, I'll have our 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 crest take your sorrow and bury it. So we, and so, um, so in these, in these uh, removal of grief, you know, you, there's this, this oratory, this oratory that's built on the knowledge of our, of our clans, our, our, the history of our clans. And we use that, you know, to comfort, to comfort um, the grieving clan. Then after all of the clans, the interrelated clans to so the grieving clan have spoken, then they, they will come out and, and respond. We have to have that social and spiritual balance. So they'll respond and they, they will thank each of those uh, persons who offered words of comfort. Thank you, Shangu Kedi, for bringing out your atu. Thank you for warming our hearts i could feel the warmth of your of your of your sun uh, on my on my face so they'll they'll have these responses so anyway this kind of social interaction goes on in, in these three different ceremonies we have but in the last ceremony which is called the kui or what people will call the potlatch is they'll go through they'll have this grieving and they'll have what they call the last cry. And they have, uh, and in some places, um, the women will dance and they have these long yarns and they'll dance in harmony and uh, they'll sway one way and they'll be singing a, a, a sorrow song. And then they'll hit the drum and they'll sway the other way. It's really powerful to see, I don't know, that many people have ever seen, you know, this kind of ceremony. But anyway, it's our last cry. And oh, some of the some of the oratory that you you we've heard, you know, in these uh, last ceremonies are just powerful. And it's it's you know one of the I think the strengths of our culture is that we do have these ceremonies. But anyway, right after this after this last cry, then they move into a happy time. So. So it has great psychological, you know, benefits is that I'm grieving, I've grieved for a year, I've had the comfort of my opposite, but this is my last cry. And from now on, I'm going into happy times.
So in kind of in a nutshell, that's that's our, our, our grieving process. Thank you for that, Rosita. The whole idea that I was getting in this is not a stagnant culture that is actually evolving along, as you say, with incorporating the, the new ways of communication. Is that more true for the younger people than the older people where they might be moving on? Because a lot of other Native cultures actually are, are romanticizing something that was. And yet what I'm hearing from you and your culture of the Clinket is that it is actually evolving and adjusting as we go along. Is that is that more true than, than not? Exactly. I always say it's one of the strengths of our, our, our people. And I, I must say that our people here in Southeast Alaska include the Clinket, the Haidas, and the Simpsons. And so, but we're, we're, even though we have different languages, we're from different language groups, our cultures are very, very similar. Uh, I, and I know, I, I know they'll always say, we're different, we're different. And I, I say, yes, we're different. But we also have these common themes and common threads and common components, you know, that make us part of the whole Northwest Coast culture. But one of the strengths, you know, that, and the strength that I say that we've had is that we've had to learn how to adapt. We've had to, but yet at the same time, make sure that we're incorporating our culture into these new forms. And, it, and we, we saw it right from the very beginning of, uh, of Western contact when the United States supposedly bought Alaska from the Russians. And our clan leaders met and said, you know, if you want to buy our land, then you have to buy it from the rightful owners. And the Russians aren't the rightful owners. If you want to buy it, you pay us. And we actually thought about going to war. I mean, the council met and said, should we wage war against the United States? And our clan leaders discussed it. And they said, well, we've been buying our weaponry from the Americans to keep the Russians under control. And there seems to be this endless population of these people, we used to call them Kinjichwan, King George I people. And they seem, their population seems endless. So we didn't go to war, but what we did do is we took the institution of the American society and used those institutions to protect ourselves. So what did we do? We brought a court case against the United States for the taking of our land, for the taking uh, of our land to create Congress National Forest, to create Glacier Bay, and to create uh, the uh, uh, Metlakatla Reserve. So we went to court. And so we, so it was an adaptation. We didn't go to war, but we used the, the uh, institutions of the larger society to protect ourselves. And, and that's been our whole history of taking, I mean, like we took corporations to settle our land claims. We said we want to have control of our land. And that was the that was the key concept for us, control of our land, ownership of our land, not something that was held in trust where the government can make a decision. And we saw what we saw from our brothers and sisters in the lower 48, you know, our guys would go off to war, come back home and find out that the BIA had leased their land for 99 years. So we said, we don't want that. So somebody said, well, if you have, if you put your land into fee simple title and have it held by corporations, then you could protect the ownership of your land. So we say, hey, let's do that. So 
again, we use the institutions of the larger society to protect ourselves. So adaptation, you know, is definitely one of our strengths. Oh, this is so good to hear. Very strengthening, encouraging, Rosita. Is there something encouraging about this book that may be coming out of this grant um, to document the removal of grief? Because that's very important now, as you know, with the boarding school issues in Canada and in the lower 48, as well as Alaska, too, because there were, I think, 400 boarding schools. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, unfortunately, I have to say I know it firsthand. You know, I'm one of those that was removed, that was kidnapped when I was six years old, and I was brought to a boarding school. So boarding schools in Alaska are very real. You know, it, uh, in Alaska, what happened was the missionaries came into Alaska. They divided up Alaska into the different denominations. And in other parts, it was that took over, you know, them. So um, they, they built boarding schools, missionary schools. Are we having problems with uh, hearing? Oh, there's a buzz behind you. Oh. Yeah, I don't know what that is, but. That's, I can't control that. We're building an arts campus and that's the construction uh, going on oh. across the street. I'm so sorry. I, can't, I don't know how to tell them to stop it, you know. Okay, but okay. Because they weren't working hard enough. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, then we might have to end this in this because okay. it's not. Yeah. But thank you for this. Right. This is sure. just an honor to talk to you once again. And so much more I could learn. Like the more than a library behind you there is. I got my little one here, but I mean, I just want to sit and listen. Thank you. You're you're uh, good. You're such an energy to to talk to. And thank you. It's very honoring to, to talk to you, Rosita. So your hometown's bringing you down Oh, you're drowning in the small talk and the chatter Oh, you're gonna step into line like your daddy done Bunching the time and climbing life's long ladder You've been howling at the moon like a slack-jawed fool And breaking every rule they can throw on Well one of these days It's gonna be right soon You'll find your legs and go And stay gone Young man Full of big plans And thinking about tomorrow Young man Gonna make a stand Beg, steal your ball. You beg, you steal your ball. Well, all the friends that you knew in school, they used to be so cool, now they just bore you. 
But look at 'em now, already pulling the plow. So quick to take to grain, like some old mule. Young man, full of big plans and thinking about tomorrow. Young man, gonna make a stand, you beg, steal your ball. You beg, you steal. Dreaming of the day you're gonna pack your bags. With the miles away, oh, just grab your girl and go where no one knows you. What will all the old folks say? So the hometown's bringing you down. Oh, you're drowning in the small talk and the chatter. Are you gonna step into line like your daddy done, punching the time and climbing life's long ladder? Young man, full of big plans and thinking about tomorrow. Young man, gonna make a stand. You beg, steal, you borrow. You beg, you steal, you borrow. That is Rosita World. And what happened, I'll tell you a little bit about what happened during the interview, is, of course, she said it was construction behind it. But it seems that because of the distance, we couldn't get a complete and thorough and clear audio. So I think we're going to complete that boarding school interview because it is happening, and I wanted to clarify what's going on with boarding school. It's not the that we, as Native people, sent away our kids. They were taken away um, for over 100 years, and some even closing in 1998. And those kids, um, you know, are alive, and some of them are 87, 89, 90 years old, like my mother. And some are as young as, even younger than I am. And being a boarding school survivor, this is real, over 130, excuse me, 137, 38, 39 boarding schools, residential schools in Canada alone, with now 21, I believe it is, 21 schools unearthed and over 6,500 children in scattered, hidden, secret graveyards, gravestones everywhere, no gravestones, grave. Markers, nothing. And in the lower 48, 
over 400 schools, residential schools, boarding schools, sponsored by churches and institutions, not uncovered, not uncovered. So the estimate that we came up with for Canada alone is nearly, I could go on, but speculation until it's done, so I won't give you a number. But it's the tens of tens of thousands, and yet we're not going to pay attention to that because this is Native people. So again, another something that is in the community that you think has nothing to do with the land that you occupy. Yes, so this is the grief that we deal with here, and also our freedom to talk about the critical race theory that with a friend and a guest, Okumbwa Sauti, we finished part one. And now we're going to finish out the critical race theory. We talk about the ways to think. We talk about, you know, how we can do this as people of culture to reclaim who we are and not allow ourselves to be defined by the dominant science, uh, religion, and the government because it's common thought and language among Americans. Again, this is Okumbwe Sauti. On First Voices Radio. I, I want to get to the idea about, and I know I don't speak English as well as I could, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I could go to the academia very well, but even mm-hmm. there it gets all confused because I'm not putting the concepts in the proper train order. In fact, the caboose is in the front and the engine's <laughs> pushing everything. And so this language I speak, to, I lack nuance as much as, mm-hmm. as I don't lack nuance in colonization because it's happening to me. And from out of that hurt or grief or whatever it is, I Mm -hmm. know how dangerous it is to just acquiesce. But then again, that as you and I have talked about in in the Lakota, there's no concept or or word for uh, domination. So what are we working out of if we don't have domination? What happens to a country when people are just tired of fear? You know, where Mm -hmm. hope is cruel Mm -hmm. in a sense. Mm What I'm looking for are those people who aren't using the fear and given reward system to exist. But I'm looking for those who actually are standing with their feet in the earth rather than the head in the sky. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I you know, <laughs> you, you actually let me just touch on your uh, talking about not being uh, nuanced or something like that. You know, you're one of the more nuanced people who understand the uh, English language way better than a whole lot of folks who were born here or born in Britain or wherever they were born. Um, I tell you, I think you have a facility with it. Uh, and I'm not just trying to fawn over the uh, host here, but, but I, but I've, I've heard the eloquence of your words. And, and I think like you were kind of suggesting that comes out of your own language that comes out of uh, understanding how uh, colonialism affected you affected us and you and as you well know you know the the struggle to revitalize you know indigenous languages and even to protect you know africanisms within black culture in the united states is really powerful mm-hmm. there's a big you know, desire to protect that because it says who we are. As I learned the language of Kiswahili, even the way things are phrased or what how things are said says what the culture is about. You know, and so mm-hmm. I think, yeah, for us to be able to break out of English as a, you know, kind of a global, awful, 
you know, way of communicating so much, so many things. And yeah, okay, we're both speaking English right now. Lots of us speak English. And yes, we need to use it against the system. But, you know, when we start to connect to our own languages and our own cultures in a, in a deep, deep way, we start to crack that open again. We're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Yeah, we don't have any word for this. Or like, you know, the great uh, African historian John Henry Clark said, you know, before the coming of the European, there was no, uh, the, the term God didn't exist. And there were also no jails. You know, so what's, right. you know, yeah. so, you know, it's okay. So they got here. So we got the Bible jails and, and the word God that tells us a lot about what came after. So, yeah, I, I think there's just this broad level of, of the ways that we need to you know, kind of look at culture, look at each other, you know, to be able to look at each other again as full human beings and, and really start to see what's possible in the world. You know, there's just this thing that, that we were taught that, to be needy when we came into this society, to be needy because because then you needed the the language to support the neediness or possession or ownership of mm -hmm. property, property, anything like mm -hmm. this. But I'm also right. seeing that along with this bigger, badder, dangerous prompting of what American is, you know, like we're the mm -hmm. police of the world. Therefore, yeah. we're the morality of the world. Therefore, mm. we can dominate because we are the right of the world. And yet mm -hmm. underneath the breath is always this this. Um, I wrote something down here that uh, they are um, sort of being crushed by their own boredom, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and so therefore they have to wow. make, make ideas up fun carnivalize the rest of the world so it's entertainment for them right and once we are able to get them quote unquote the other peoples who are not thinking elitisms in this case mm -hmm. that that they will be controllable so the way i understand it is the fact that i came into a society to that taught me to see everything as a mistake you see, mm -hmm. you're born wrong and you're not following mm -hmm. the rules and you're speaking mm -hmm. the long, you get it? The long mm -hmm. language. And, but, but also what it taught me, Sauti, is mm -hmm. that it taught me to always try to chase the repair of it. So I'm mm -hmm. chasing, I'm chasing repair all mm -hmm. the time. And that would leave someone de depleted. And you heard the saying, um, kill the Indian and save the child. Yes, I have. So what is going on now is well, we're killing the, the human with technology. Yeah. And to make everybody killing the being with technology so that we can save the human. Well, you know, and and to save the human for a particular purpose, you know, uh, that is very narrow. That is, you know, and I always think of the Matrix uh, metaphor again, you know, that people have become batteries and they're being fed stories into their, you know, cortex to think that the world actually looks like this and it doesn't, you know, so, and, you know, there's a larger metaphor and actuality to the media itself and how these narratives get, get pushed forward, you know, so, um, I, I think, yeah, that, um, you know, again, these, these, these constructs are so limiting, um, to human life and living and culture um, that we have to find, you know, that we can't just chase the repair. You know, we have to have a sense of even the revitalization of culture is, I think, central to anti-colonialism and decolonization. Mm -hmm. but, but we have to be able to sit inside of our wholeness in some way, shape or form, you know, so that um, this 
this uh, dehumanization, you know, where even, you know, it reminds me that, you know, so many women are saying, well, you know, we don't even have in many places control over our own bodies, you know, particularly around childbirth, things like that. African women are dying in tremendous numbers and, you know, with so-called natal care and, and, you know, during the pregnancies and even just in the hospital stay. So, you know, the ability to stay alive, and we know that's true also for indigenous women, you know, not only just on Turtle Island, but in many, many places, mm-hmm. you know, so, so our ability to even sustain ourselves as human beings, you know, is really guided by, um, again, the, what comes up through us from the earth itself, which is where the source of our being is anyway, you know, so um, in part, you know, because so many of us still have concepts of of, you know, deity and, and spiritual, you know, relationships, uh, not only to each other, but to the earth herself and, you know, to the, to the universe. So, you know, that's a pretty big place to pull from, but again, yes, the, the, the anti-culture, as I like to call it, of, you know, European colonialism, um, wants to really shrink that down to a place where, yeah, we become, you know, ping pong balls on the table, you know, where we don't control, uh, what the outcomes of our lives are, even the outcomes of our, you know, academia, you know, because even that's that's a place of struggle. That's a battleground for a lot of indigenous people, African people, people of, you know, the global majority. Um, You know, I've been looking at a lot of things on social media around how, you know, the cultures of India are really struggling, you know, in these contexts of, of academia, but also in just the culture itself, how people see each other, you know, how we, um, you know, take in the cultural, you know, expansion that we're, a lot of us are going through to really save ourselves on this earth and, and to, you know, mend the, the harm that's been done to us. But yeah, if we're, if we're doing nothing but chasing, you know, the band, the next bandaid that's going to um, be put on, uh, we're going to be in real trouble. And, and we see that already, you yeah. know, so. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That bandaid is, out of the resources of the earth and maybe we're we're only looking for the band-aid but yet not really seeing the source behind it it's like we want to cover it up i think just to describe this mindset as i say this being crazy seems to be the easiest part it's what happens what happens after crazy that messes us up the reset button to go back to you know, it's crazy right now, but then what's going to happen after it's crazy back to the normal. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the work of a lot of indigenous people, whether it might be Maladoma Somme working from the Dagra culture or Martin Prechtel working from, um, you know, the Zutu Hill culture that looks at, you know, mental illness as a gift to the culture because they're seeing things in a new, different way that is unsettling for us. But it's unsettling oftentimes in the right way. I remember walking down the street in Boston one time and you know how people, you know, we call them homeless, uh, but we all have a home on Mother Earth. But um, I remember this gentleman looking up at the buildings and he was rattling off all kinds of things. Right. And most of us ignore them. And so I took the time to listen to what he was saying. You know, and my goodness, he was reading the riot act on the United States uh, politics and oppression. He was saying it really fast. And, you know, he looked different because he was wearing all kinds of mishmash of clothes and all this kind of stuff and possibly had a smell that wasn't cool for us. Mm. But let me tell you, he could have led a class on decolonization and possibly he might have 
done in his past. I don't know, but he was as clear as a bell. He was as clear as a bell. He was just saying it really fast. <laughs> and, and then nobody was listening. And maybe, you know, maybe I was one of the few who listened to him, but it taught me a lot about people that we say are different than us who might, you know, be that word crazy or, you know, as we say, you know, that might have mental illness of some sort. They have something for us. And if we're not able to listen, we're going to miss it. That that you know? fit. Yeah, it does. And if and missing it is there was a, a woman I interviewed a few months back, Micheline Duclef, who talked about hunt, gather, parent, how indigenous mm. peoples all over the world, you know, mm. all over the world that mm. she went to live with three, three places, four places. And mm-hmm. she found out that there is quite a bit of the influence of the 12 percent of the mm-hmm. Occidental in the world come from mm-hmm. Europe right, or part of that, mm-hmm. the, the white race. Yeah. Yeah. which is a hard word for them to hear. But the psychologies that were developed is around 1900 with with uh, Freud and people like that. Mm-hmm. And how to raise children are often defined by, by how men raise them patriarchally. Yeah, yes. Tell the woman. So what I'm saying is 96% of these psychologies have had their influence around the world and are still influencing. So it does colonization of the mind does begin right. with a, we hear the songs, the Marley yeah. singing about, you know, mm. your mind control. So right. I think there we could start with how science has controlled technology has basically educated the wisdom out of ourselves to mm-hmm. sort of uh, recognize our roots as right. you, as you do. Right. Well, you know, Two things come up for me around that. Um, there's a, obviously within European colonialism, there's a uh, what I call predatory Christianity that says the only way to connect to the divine is through this one, you know, um, off planet deity, as John Lamb, Lamb Lash calls it um, to, you know, in a male um, deity. Um, that's the way you get that, you know, and European colonialism also says that if you don't go through our scientists, you know, you don't actually know anything and you don't have any valid information. So and that's why I've called the the knowledge uh, that indigenous people have created. I, I've called it, you know, informed intimacy, you know, because we do have an intimacy with the with the relationality of nature and, and how it works for us and how we fit into it. Um, it is an intimacy which, you know, supposedly science seeks to. Um, help, you know, to like find out what's at the core of the molecule or something like that. Um, you know, those kinds of things that, and, you know, maybe there have been some helpful things that have come out of that, but if it's at the price of the destruction of other cultures around the world, no, we can't have that. But, you know, that there's this context that we have to control through a hierarchical fashion how actual intelligence and, and internal ability to conduct ourselves, you know, in psychological ways you know, has to come through the information of, of European men. And, and that's that's unconscionable and it doesn't even work. We know it doesn't even work, mm-hmm. you know, but they're going to force that upon us. And, and obviously, you know, and especially around women and queer uh, folk, you know, who have been fighting against this patriarchal um, juggernaut for so many years, not just with, you know, European colonialism, but beyond that to say, wait a minute, you know, this is not going to happen this way. We can't do it this way. Nature doesn't work that way. You know, a forest doesn't say, oh, we got to go to the tree over there to figure out how it works. No, there's a mycelium network and, and a relationship between the moisture that comes out of all and the oxygen that's related to all the 
trees, you know, they're working as a family. They're working as a, as a family. They're not working through the highest, tallest tree. That's not the big boss. You know, they're, they're, they're going on the information, you know, from the seedlings themselves, you know, uh, you know, they're all part of the family. So, you know, when, you know, humans see that that's what our nature is, then we start to see science in a different way. It's like, oh, so you figured that science said we should go to Mars and try to put people up there when we haven't even figured it out here within colonialism here, though we had sustainable ways 500 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago. Actually, they're still here, mm -hmm. but we're not listening to them anymore. You know, and, and they're fighting it. They're fighting this knowledge because then it takes them off their hierarchical standpoint. And and that's what's going to happen. I've always thought that European colonialism is a house of cards, but it's protected by tanks. You know, <laughs> so it, it's hard to get in there. But boy, when that breeze comes up, you know, when the when the breeze from a butterfly hits it, it's over. It's done. I hear that. Oh, but yeah, that's I, that's how I felt it is, you know, then that's why they fight so hard. That's why the CRT piece has come in, because it's like, oh, we feel that breeze of truth coming through. That can't happen. We got to turn up the tanks, you know, wow. so they can't see that it, that it's built on nothing. There's no foundation to it. You know, um, the, the, you know, like if called the, you know, the papal bulls, what the Roman Catholic Church did, you know, was all fantasy, of course. But they but they forced the fantasy. Globally, they forced it, not not through the beauty of the ideas that came out of the Bible, but from the from the tanks and guns and uh, and swords that they put around it and said, oh, you're going to accept this, um, but you're going to accept it our way. You know, wow, wow. We, we've gone all across the board as is usual. <laughs> and I think yes. about. You know, there's a certain amount of, of forbidden knowledge. I, I would call mm. some people would call it the um, mm. archive of the impossible. Mm. Who's keeping? Who's the gatekeeper of that archive of the impossible? Where when mm. we go to the other side, the archive of living is the earth, mm -hmm. and it's right. all free. It's always open. The library's always open. Oof. Always. 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 Yeah. So let's let's mm -hmm. go with one more commentary about that statement, unless you want to make one of your own sort mm. of this um, neural gateway that we talk about all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. That it's it's so simple, even though we may use the terms of the colonizer and mm -hmm. concepts, we're still coming from that neural spiritual gateway that mm -hmm. that is, you know, I guess it's already defined us. Mm -hmm. As coming from the earth rather than the mm -hmm. the, the, the sky goddy type of mentality. So let's mm -hmm. talk. Let's go out with that and and see what value we can leave this this discussion with as people mm -hmm. listen. Well, you know, again, what comes up for me right then and there is that the what one of the things that we can get from you know decolonized thinking, decolonized relationships with each other in the world is that like you're suggesting and have said, we can all have a direct relationship to the highest and lowest of, and I, and by that, I don't mean a, a hierarchy, just by the depth and breadth of all the things that we can experience in the world, why we have to open ourselves to our emotions, to our intuition, not just to academic information, though that can be helpful, of course, but 
but again, if that's colonized, then we got a problem. But but that we're opening ourselves into the complete fullness, and why I often say, you know, ask people, and you know, when I do counseling with people, I ask them, you know, about feet on the ground. I say, do you have your feet on the ground? And that's, do you have a relationship with the earth that is informative to you, that you can feel the intimacy with her, that you can start to hear and feel and intuit what she's trying to tell you and how it informs us about who we are and the bigness, you know, to use a not real term, but the bigness, the largeness, the fullness, uh, the expansiveness of our human experience that we're still trying to remember to bring these things back into. We're trying to integrate the disintegration that, you know, oppression has created for us. So, you know, our ability to lock in and flow through these relationships with the earth, you know, and, and, you know, I obviously, you know, have done a lot of media studies, you know, in the higher ed and other places, but, you know, it reminds me of like, when we think of the, the program, the documentary planet earth, now it's some of the best footage you can find of nature and things like that. But one of the deepest problem problems that comes with that is that we're starting to now have a mediated relationship with nature. And I'm not saying it's not beautiful. And I remember talking to some of my video students one year, you know, one time as we went outside of the classroom and I said, be prepared to see a heron, you know, like in this uh, pond, actually kind of a funky polluted one, but still life is abundant in that space, you know, which tells us something about our real nature as beings on this earth that we can fight against even the worst you know, polluting ideas. But anyway, I, I warned them and say, hey, you know, we might find this out here. And lo and behold, you know, we get like 20 yards from the edge of the water and I see a heron sitting there. And again, we're talking about media. Uh, you know, there's our classes about media. And so, you know, and they were breathless that there was a heron, a great blue heron right there. And you don't have that experience when you look at you know, planet earth documentary, you know, um, you don't have that relationship with it. And actually one of the most profound things that came from that class is one of my students, as we were walking away said, I'm not even sure if I should continue in video because he started to realize how limiting video is. Now I'm not saying that we can't do great things with the media. We can, we can, but he really started to think beyond the story that, you know, the media is the message in a, a certain way, you know, but that we can look beyond it and say, you know, um, wait a minute, what's real about our world? And, and I and he was really brave to say that out loud to his teacher. I don't even know if I should continue this, you know, and I don't remember the outcome of that. You know, if he stayed in it, great. If he didn't stay in it, great. You know, he had to follow his own thing. But even that one experience of seeing that and, you know, where I challenged them to look beyond you know, the view that we have to a screen and that they can see 180 degrees. Again, they were sort of mind blown. They're like, oh, my goodness, that's right. I can see 180 degrees. But in a mediated world, we're not trained to think about it that way. And they saw things that day and felt things and heard things that day that really challenged their way of being and their way of seeing. And, and that was powerful. And I gave them credit for even going there with me. Mm-hmm. But, but that's some of the things that we're trying to do. You know, and that that are key to this process of of getting beyond this matrix, you know, that that limits us as human beings and it limits us in a relationship to the earth, which is, again, as you say, you know, it's where it all comes from. It's the library, you yes. know, that has unlimited amount of pages. 
Yeah. And, and, and more languages than we can even imagine. That's right. And we're not even <laughs> at the tip of the iceberg yet. So right the ice cube of the iceberg. Um, but, <laughs> right. But um, so I'd like to thank you, Kumba friend. And Kumba uh, Saudi was an initiated elder in yes. West Africa. But thank you. Yeah. It's an honor to have you here. And mm. thank you, Jokerson. And people are thank getting you. this free counseling session on the air. We're here to deliver. All right. Okay. Hey, man, be good to yourself and take care. And you just heard a piece with Ukumbwa Sauti about critical race theory, part two. Sauti is a friend and regular guest on First Forces Radio. And he's an initiated elder in the Dagara tradition from the Burkina Faso in West Africa and has been active in the Pan-African movement, Black Lives Matter, and other anti-racism work, and the Occupy to Decolonize to Liberate movements. He can be reached for bookings and consultations on Facebook from Twitter at email, ukumbwa at gmail.com, which is U-K-U-M-B-W-A at gmail.com. And again, his current website is worldancestorconcert.com. Now it was a pleasure to talk with Akumba, as always, here on First Voices Radio. And thank you again, Akumba. This is Ray Lamontagne with Beg, Steal, You Borrow. So your hometown's bringing you down. Are you drowning in the small talk and the chatter? Are you gonna step into line like your daddy done? Bunching the time and climbing life's long ladder. You've been howling at the moon like a slack jawed fool and breaking every rule they can throw on.